marijuana, pot, grass, shake, bud, ganja, chronic, cannabis. Cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than 10 years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey buddy. Hey, buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter-approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment and legalization go up in smoke? (coughs) Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry. The activists. The medical professionals. The legislators. The economists. The regulators. The lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on the COIN Podcast Network. In 1998, voters approved the Oregon Medical Marijuana Act, allowing patients with documented approval from their doctors to apply for a state-issued medical marijuana card. The card allowed a patient to legally grow, possess, and use cannabis for their state-approved medical condition. I wanted to find out more about the medicinal uses of cannabis and the risks, both short-term and long-term. On this episode, we speak with Joseph Bublo, a clinical pharmacist at Oregon Health Sciences University, about the medicinal uses, the research, and the negative impacts of marijuana use. You're listening to Mainstream Media. Record-setting crime and an overwhelming homeless crisis. Portlanders want to know, where's the leadership? What's the plan? We are literally scared. Last spring, we asked, is Portland over? This fall, we're taking an in-depth look at the problems and asking tough questions. Why does it seem so difficult for the council to speak in a united voice when it comes to the gun violence? Is Portland over? Tuesdays at 5, this November on Coin 6. Welcome back to Mainstream Media. Joseph Bublo, you're a clinical pharmacist at OHSU and When I was looking for someone in the medical field to talk about the medicinal uses of cannabis, your name kept popping up. You not only know about the subject matter, you've made presentations to your peers about cannabis. Yeah, actually quite a few times. Uh, We've been following it ever since, uh, pretty closely ever since it was legalized recreationally and it became much more available to cancer patients. And so we wanted to really look into the pharmacology and understand the medical aspects as well as the drug interactions, side effects, things like that, that would be something that someone who's using it might experience. Since one of the uh, medical indications actually is cancer, it's been uh, pertinent to the patients that we care for. I, I work with cancer patients primarily for many years. Cannabis became a legal medical option in 1998 when voters passed the Oregon Medical Marijuana Act. How we implemented that law and the program itself has morphed over the years. But in simple terms, how does the program work? If you're a potential patient, how do you join the program? As as I understand it, the medical program is based on uh, patients who have a, a debilitating medical need. So they have a condition which is not being well cared for by conventional medical means. And there's a list 
breast uh, cancer, um, a disease that causes cachexia, weight loss disease, things like that, and uh, muscle spasms that are not controlled. So multiple sclerosis patients will sometimes look at it. And then there's a few other types as well. And if you have one of these debilitating conditions, you can then go to your doctor uh, explain to them and you talk, they're going to talk to you about what you have used and have not used and come to a, a decision with you that uh, cannabis either is okay or not. If it is, you can fill out a form and petition to get a medical marijuana card. And that card as a medicinal user grants you access to possess larger quantities of cannabis and also access to products with higher potency, correct? So the, the dose that they take can be larger. Uh, of course, with recreational, people pick their own dose. But with the, on the medical side, generally, they are commonly using little larger doses. And the other thing that the card does for them is it actually saves them sales tax, which is pretty considerable when you look at the cost of the cannabis products. So what are considered the medical benefits of cannabis? So the things that are most usually going to be treated with cannabis are someone who is having pain, nausea, muscle spasms are probably the top three that are not being well managed through current medical care. Those uh, are actually the ones that are most researched. They have probably the greatest benefit. Uh, glaucoma was an early indication, but the medicines for glaucoma, which is a, a high pressure in the eye that can cause blindness, have gotten so much better that cannabis is really not used for glaucoma much anymore. It was never that effective. It was kind of a, a desperation measure. But for pain, nausea, uh, appetite, and muscle spasms, those are pretty commonly sought out conditions that are not always treated well or treated with a lot of side effects with current medical interventions. One of the conditions on the list that could qualify you for an Oregon medical marijuana card is post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Is that because it may help you with sleep or a, a sense of calm? Have they discovered a correlation between the use of cannabis and lessening of the effects of PTSD? Or is this more along the lines of, we anecdotally think it helps? Yeah, I think it's the last that you pointed out. It's it's one that is a increasingly common condition, especially with all of our, our recent armed forces conflicts, as well as a lot of societal trauma. There are not great treatments currently, or the treatments are so wide and the patient's needs are so different that it has become something of interest for those that are treating it. And interestingly enough, it's not um, when we say cannabis, we're usually referring to two products, either a high THC product or a cannabidiol CBD product. Both of these are actually being looked at for PTSD. The evidence is very early. There's not a, a lot of research in the United States. Most of it is outside the United States. So I think it speaks to the not well-characterized, not well-treated nature of PTSD that it is on the list. Let's talk a little bit more about these two compounds, these two products, as you called them, THC and CBD. What are they? What are their properties and what do they do? What is the difference between the two? So the THC has always been the Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinols, the long name. <laughs> and it, it has always been the thing that people are growing it for, for recreational purposes. This is what causes the characteristic high or euphoria of a cannabis product. And along with that euphoria will often come uh, relaxation, a increase in appetite, and uh, other sought-after qualities of someone who may be treated 
treating themselves with cannabis product. The other thing about THC uh, pharmacy-wise, I'm dipping into my pharmacy nerd side here for just a second, um, is it uh, interacts with the cannabinoid receptors. We have two types, uh, what we call CB1 and CB2 uh, receptors in the body, and THC interacts mainly with the ones, but also somewhat with the twos. And so there's a, a pretty clear mechanism that THC, kind of how it acts in the body, though the effects are not all that well understood. CBD or cannabidiol is very different, actually. It doesn't cause euphoria. In fact, at high doses, it causes um, appetite decrease and some other things. But it appears to be kind of what we call uh, anxiolytic, meaning that it reduces anxiety. And I think that is the goal when they use it for PTSD, is you're trying to reduce a lot of the anxiety feelings that people are having that may be part of their particular condition. The CBD does not interact with either the CB1 or CB2 receptor. It interacts with different receptors, and we're not quite sure which ones they are. There's, the theories are still being worked out, and research is slow on that. The other thing that is often going to happen is there will be a combination of THC and CBD in a preparation, in a cannabis product. And it turns out that CBD reduces the euphoria effect. So someone who's on the medicinal side may look for a um, CBD-THC ratio that seems to favor their uh, treatment of their particular condition. So they are not as likely to get high or have that kind of effect, which they may not be seeking and yet can still get the medicinal benefits. Medical research of cannabis in the United States is greatly limited and controlled by the federal government due to cannabis being a federally scheduled one substance. Internationally, who is leading the cannabis research efforts? And is the medical community in the U.S. lobbying to open up that research stateside? I think I think they are. So since this is a Schedule One substance, which the federal government defines as having no recognized medicinal use, the research is, is very uh, strictly controlled. Any research that is done in the U.S. is done with government-supplied cannabis that comes out of a um, single grow plot, for lack of a better term, so that it's all the same product. What that does is it standardizes our research, what research is being done, which is not a lot, and uh, everybody's using the same product. Kind of the issue with that is that product that is being provided by the government really does not resemble the products that are available in dispensaries in Oregon or pretty much anywhere else. When you look at who's actually doing the research, uh, Israel actually does a lot of research on it, and especially in cancer and uh, other chronic or um, severe conditions. Canada, in the last few years, has greatly ramped up research as they uh, legalized recreational there. And then a variety of European countries are doing quite a bit. So most of the modern evidence is coming from outside the U.S. So how does the American medical community use that research? Yeah, so um, medical research, as it's published in, in journals, medical journals and things like that, is accessible to everyone. It's free world, you know, not maybe not free, but it's accessible worldwide. And uh, we can uh, pull those articles and we can look at, uh, we can get an idea of what the product was. We can look at the doses that were used. We can look at the side effects and benefits and uh, anything else that occurred. And we can say, I think we can get close to that here in the U.S. or 
That's not something we can mimic, but it's really, uh, we can look at it and decide whether it provided benefit or not, and maybe whether or not that's an area for further research. And often we use it to answer questions that patients have. So somebody will come in and I will look to see if there's someone like them who has been in research somewhere for their condition. By perusing and digging through the medical literature, we look for for that kind of thing. And we're looking for peer-reviewed articles, which means that it's been looked at by other pharmacologists or physicians or whomever is treating that kind of disease and then uh, published with that kind of critique and that kind of thought behind it. So we can take um, other countries' research. Uh, the problem is, is once again, we it's very hard to find a product that is similar. As a pharmacist, I'm all about the product. <laughs> now that they've legalized it nationally, I would assume that the product in Canada's research is similar to what we have here in, say, an Oregon dispensary. Am I wrong? I, I actually don't know that you're right. They, because I mean, uh, it depends where they where they get their seed stock, their their cultivars, cultivars. A lot of growers uh, grow clones. So they take one plant and they clone that plant throughout their whole grow to try to get very consistent product that their customers are used to getting for whatever um, their intended use is. So it really depends where they get their seed stock or their clone stock as to what they're growing. The other thing is, is it, it's if it's grown in Canada, growing conditions are quite different than the Willamette Valley. And you could, as a result, have a really different uh, mix of cannabinoids in that product. Let's talk about the risks. What are the recognized medical risks of cannabis use or the negative effects, both short-term and long-term? So the, the short-term side effects of cannabis are really what people are seeking. They become relaxed. They maybe laugh more. They may have an increase in appetite. Generally, um, nobody thinks clearer on a cannabis product, quite frankly. So you're at risk for short-term memory lapses. Uh, you maybe don't think as clearly, may become quite confused. And some people will be completely altered depending on the potency of the product that they're taking. We worry mostly about the inhaled products, uh, actually from a side effect standpoint, because when someone smokes cannabis, there are some vasoconstrictive effects that can cause uh, heart attacks in a very small number of people, especially older people with pre-existing heart conditions. Those that have psychiatric disorders, such as schizophrenia or bipolar, tend to have poor control when they're using a cannabis product. Uh, And these are mostly THC products that I'm pointing towards. Then there's an issue with young people. Our brain develops until around the age of 25. Legal age for cannabis is 21, but certainly below 21, what we call an endocannabinoid system, which is the parts of our bodies that use uh, cannabinoids to direct uh, development, all of that is immature. And we really don't know what that is going to do. We know that middle-aged individuals who use cannabis long-term tend to have problems with short-term memory and a few other things. We don't really know that much beyond this. And a lot of it is observational because it's very hard to get really clean data. So we're still figuring all of these things out. And then the uh, the other thing is if someone is uh, either pregnant or trying to get pregnant, we don't know the effects of cannabis on a developing fetus. This is something you can settle for me because I have heard arguments on both sides from non-medical professionals for years. Is cannabis addictive? It is absolutely addictive. So there's a there's a thing called cannabis use disorder where um, someone uh, habitually uses it and, and actually has trouble stopping. This occurs in somewhere between about 8 and 10% of individuals. So it's a little less than alcohol, certainly way less than cigarettes, but uh, it, it is a well-recognized uh, problem with cannabis use. But it's probably under-recognized for prevalence. 
I saw one report that said there were maybe somewhere around 700,000 cases per year or individuals per year with cannabis use disorder, but it tends to be uh, not well reported. So it's probably greater than that. Now that Oregon and quite a few other states have legalized recreational cannabis and most likely more states voting to legalize, what concerns you most as a medical professional about recreational cannabis use? Well, I, I would I would be most concerned about someone who uses it for a medical need rather than seeking medical care. The concern would be that they're um, maybe hiding symptoms of something that could be treated and maybe cured. The other thing is uh, if results in their uh, getting medical care later, that their condition be, can be quite advanced. As I work with cancer patients, some patients will actually attempt to treat cancer with cannabis products. And there are some that are kind of actually even marketed for that, not in the mainstream, but uh, in various ways. Almost universally, those uh, patients will come to us at some point with very advanced cancer that is now completely uncurable. And if we had been able to see them earlier that something might have been done. So if you're going to use it, it should be kind of used along with regular therapies. Uh, our concern is that it would delay decisive care that could have helped them earlier. We've talked a lot about the medical uses, the benefits, side effects, and risks. As a medical professional, do you believe there's a positive side to a recreational market? Well, I think the positive to the recreational market is that it's going to to allow medical research eventually, I think, on cannabis. The prevalence of the products, I think uh, you can get CBD products now in, uh, I think, 47 states. Uh, there's 30-odd states that have either medical or recreational programs. I think the whole kind of reasoning behind this is that there is enough crowdsourcing information that maybe there's medical benefit here, and it just needs to be figured out as to how that medical benefit can work. And if we can actually get it to where it's not Schedule 1, I think then good large-scale research could be engaged and we could actually find out where this is helpful and then maybe where it's not helpful and it's actually harming folks. What should the average person know about cannabis use that maybe they don't? Or what is the medical community more aware of than the average citizen? So I think if you're going to engage in use of cannabis, you are, believe it or not, treating yourself as what we call an N of one drug trial. You yourself are that N, that one, and you're experimenting with yourself because when you go, you don't know the right dose for your condition. You don't necessarily know what product is going to fit your needs. You can certainly consult the bud tender or the other individuals that are available to talk about products and try to get there. But uh, I would say start low, go slow, avoid uh, smoked products if possible, because we worry about lung cancer risk or other risks uh, with inhaled products. And then once again, not forsake uh, medical care if you're going to engage in that for a medical need. And on the medical side, if someone might be a candidate for the medical cannabis program, but they want more credible information about that option, what resources are available to them? Generally, their doctor or their pharmacist would be who I would recommend talking to. The reason, actually, I've been, been giving presentations is a lot of doctors are very interested. They're getting a lot of questions on this, and they want to be able to give practical advice when someone engages them on it. Because the literature that is on the internet and uh, in a lot of other places is very hard to find accurate information that is balanced. I, I actually don't have a recommended website. There's a cannabis institute that is being developed in California that I think is going to be pretty balanced uh, source of information. In the U.S., it's still a touchy subject 
because of the legal ramifications to find something like that. In preparation for our interview, I wanted to see what information was out there for patients. And I thought, well, go to the source, the Oregon Health Authority, the very body that oversees the medical marijuana program. And I went to the website imagining that I was suffering from a condition and my doctor and I had talked, but I wanted more information. But the OHA website has more about policy and and legislative ordinance and it's not very patient-friendly. Do you believe that's still a reaction to the Schedule One status? A fear of federal repercussion or not wanting to step over an imaginary line? I think it is, because the, the website is really more about how to be a dispensary owner, and how to comply with all the regulations and stuff like that. It's not patient-friendly at all. I, I think there is a, a fear and a lot of concern that if they were to actually give advice on dosing, on conditions, on drug interactions, anything like that, that it would be construed as the administration supporting the use of cannabis for things that maybe are not medically proven. And then there's political ramifications that come of that. So I think the... um, yeah, the, the governmental references and support for individuals aren't there because of that. Any final thoughts, anything that you want people to know that maybe I didn't touch on? I think I would probably hit a couple of points that I, I've already hit on uh, during this. Uh, one is uh, uh, I wouldn't use an inhaled product. Anything that is burned is potentially more harmful to you. I, I think the oral edibles are the way we suggest people go. You'll have to start low. The Oregon is kind of nice in that it has the five milligram individual doses uh, for all the oral products. So you can see how that uh, impacts you and what kind of side effects you get and then can go from there. And then the biggest thing with orals is that they take quite a while to actually to cause effect. So most people take between one and three hours to really see the onset of the effects. And that's why the inhaled, I think, has always been more popular. You usually have onset within about 15 minutes. So it's going to take longer. So take your time and work through uh, whatever your medical need is. That is Joseph Bublow, clinical pharmacist with Oregon Health Sciences University. Mainstream media. As you heard, the medical uses in some areas are very encouraging, but the long-term impacts of cannabis are still a big question mark because the medical research is still lacking in many areas, mostly due to the federal Schedule One status. In our next episode, we'll talk about the work being done on federal cannabis reform and how that work will directly impact the cannabis industry here in Oregon. I'm Travis Box. Thank you for listening to Mainstream Weedia on The Coin Podcast Network.